Uh, good morning. My name is Keith. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and uh, I consider it uh, somewhat of good news that you made it this morning. You, you braved the snow, right? You, you made it uh, from your driveway that you probably had to shovel and down the snowy streets to here, and that's uh, good news. Uh, good news also, uh, word on the street is that Taylor Swift has arrived at the Super Bowl. I know everyone was wondering about that, but we considered, Tim considers that good news uh, up there in the balcony, and so that's good news. Uh, but uh, we know the real good news, that Jesus did not leave us in darkness. He did not leave us to wallow under the weight of our own sin and shame and guilt, but he made the journey from the riches of heaven to become poor on earth so that he might give his life as a ransom for many, for all of us. It's good news. Uh, he made it. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And by his spirit, he has forgiven us of our sin, reconciled us to the God who made us and loves us, and he is present even in this moment. And so maybe you're here and, and you feel like you're, you're wallowing in sorrow, that you're buried in it. Not wallowing, that's the wrong word, but you're buried in sorrow. Or maybe you're here and you feel like you're excited about life. God is present to us in every season of the soul. And he wants to meet with you. And maybe you're new or a visitor, you're unfamiliar with church. We want you to know that you are welcome in this place because God welcomes everyone into the center of his life. It's why Jesus came. And so we're delighted that you're here as we turn our attention to him and all that he wants in our life. Uh, for those of you who, who know me, um, or even if maybe you don't know me well, you probably know that I love soccer. I love to play soccer. And I also enjoy coaching people. And so these two things come together, and, and I've been coaching my son's soccer team for many years now. And I remember when these kids started out, they were a bunch of five-year-old stray cats. And here's what each week looked like with these kids. I'd arrive at the pitch early, and I'd set everything up for the drills. And they teach you in the coach's training that structure is so important for kids to develop in the game. And so I'd go about and I'd meticulously organize every detail of the practice. I'd line up the cones perfectly, and, and I'd count out the spacing just right between them. I would even color code the cones so the boys could see the field easily, and they could recognize where they're supposed to play. The practices, I've got to tell you, these practices, they were perfect until the boys showed up. <laughs> because when a five-year-old boy sees a cone on the ground, they see something to kick. Or they see a really nice hat that they can wear. Or something that fits over your ear really nicely and it makes all of your other friends laugh. And do you know what a five-year-old boy does when he sees another five-year-old boy doing something funny? Well, he has to do the exact same thing too. And all of a sudden you have 12 boys running around with cones over their ears. And then when I finally get their attention and I get the cones placed back more or less in their position, uh, I, I split the group in, into two in order to run a drill. But I only get about three words of instruction because in that seven seconds, one group has started a karate match with, another, with one another and the other group sees a beetle in the grass and it's like they've never seen a bug before in their life. 
And by the time I get the karate kids to stop, stop chopping and, and the entomologists to stop poking at bugs, all 12 of them have the cones back on their ears again. This is no word of a lie. <laughs> Coaching kids soccer is like trying to organize chaos. But it must be done if they are to learn to play the game. They need the structure to learn how to grow into soccer players. And the same is true in our walk with Jesus. In the chaos of all that we do in a week or in a day or in a month, we need some form of structure to help us grow. It's necessary. We need pathways to help us follow Jesus more closely and more consistently so that we might become more like him. Otherwise, we're, we're simply walking in circles, and sometimes with cones on our ears. <laughs> and over the past few weeks, we've, we've talked about some structures. We've, we've talked about these paths that we can, we can take that help us walk more closely with Jesus. Things like Sabbath and Scripture and prayer and worship. And this morning, I want us to consider another pathway, and it's the pathway of generosity. And so turn with me uh, to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 9. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 9. If you're using your pew Bible, I think it's on page 806, uh, so you can check that out, or uh, you can turn there in your device. And in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul the Apostle is writing a letter to the Corinthian church. He's writing to Corinthian disciples, and he has something to say about another church or a series of churches further north in the region of Macedonia. 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 to 9. Hear the word of the Lord. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Jesus, this morning we... We want to sit under your generous love. You love people. 
You love us no matter what we've done or where we've been. You love us though we, we wander away. You love us even though we fail. You love us because you made us. And your great love compelled you to step into this gospel story. And so Jesus, shower us with your generous love this morning because we know that there is no act of generosity that a disciple gives that doesn't flow straight from what we've received from your very hand. And so, Jesus walked the path of generosity with us this morning, we pray in your name. Amen. I've chosen this text because in it, the Apostle Paul is casting a vision of the discipled life. And it's being lived out in this Macedonian group of believers who, uh, who had, had given to a, a, a poor Jerusalem church. There was a church in Jerusalem uh, uh, filled with Jewish Christians that was in desperate poverty. And the Macedonian church didn't have much uh, themselves. And, and so Paul gives this vision of, of the discipled life in the Macedonian church. Look at verse 2. It says, In the midst of a very severe trial... Their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty, it welled up in rich generosity. It's a a vision of the discipled life. And Paul is calling this Corinthian church, these Corinthian disciples, to live into the same vision. In verse 7, he says, See to it that you also excel in this grace of giving. Generous. I wonder who comes to mind for you when you hear the word generous. For me, uh, it's actually my mom. (laughs) She is generous uh, almost to a fault. (laughs) See, when I was in high school, my friends could never leave our house without something being pushed into their pockets by my mom. (laughs) She'd hear them leaving at the front door and she'd come running with granola bars and pieces of lemon loaf and shoving them in their hands whether they wanted to eat them or not. And then there was the time she gave away my GT snow racer to the kids down the street. I don't want to talk about that right now. It's much too painful a memory for me. (laughs) But Jesus was generous too. Jesus was generous in everything he did. He was generous with his time. He gave it away to people in need. He, He gave it to the outcasts and the sick and the lonely. Jesus was generous with his resources. You remember the time when he he fed thousands of people with the very little that he had. And when Jesus taught, he would say things like to his disciples, like, you know what, if you have two jackets, give one of them to the person who doesn't have a jacket. And Jesus was generous. He he was generous with his power and his authority. He used it to to heal the sick and to, to free the oppressed. And of course, Jesus was generous with with God's love and and God's grace. See, not counting our sin against us, he came to forgive us and welcome us back into the family of God. Generosity lies at the very heart of who Jesus was. Verse 9 in our text, it captures it. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor so that through his poverty you might become rich. Tim Keller describes it saying this way. 
He, he says that, that Jesus has infinite wealth. But if he had held on to it for himself, we would have died in our spiritual poverty. That was his choice. If he stayed rich, we would die poor. But if he died poor, we would become rich. Rich how? Well, our sins would be forgiven, and we would be admitted into the family of God. Jesus was generous in all that he did. So, it should come as no surprise that, that practicing generosity is a way that we can follow Jesus on this discipleship pathway that we walk. It's interesting that, that when historians look back at history, the history of Christianity, the, one of the things that historians try to wrap their heads around is, is this mind-boggling growth of the Christian movement that happened in the first 200 years. You see, what started as a group of 12 disciples turned into 6 million disciples within 200 years. And guys, this was before TikTok, right? Six million people growth within the first 200 years. And one of the main reasons that historians believe that the church grew so fast, unlike anything the world had ever seen before, was because of the church's radical generosity. Uh, historians, they, they've unearthed this ancient letter uh, from archaeology. It's from the second century, so we're talking the 200s, and it's called the Epistle to Diognetus. It's called that because in the letter, it's addressed to a person named Diognetus. And in it, we read a little bit about how the non-Christian world viewed the early church, these early followers of Jesus. And this is what it says in that ancient document. It says, the Christians are distinguished from others, not by country, nor language, nor the customs which they observe, but Inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. As citizens, they share in all things with, with others, and yet they endure things as foreigners. They have a common table. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things, and yet abound in all things. And this is how the Roman world, the Greco-Roman world, saw the early disciples of Jesus. And it's the same generosity that, that we see in the early church in Acts chapter 2. It says there, this is the picture of the early church that we get. It says, all of the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They, they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. You see, the world had had never seen such a compelling example of generosity. But when it did, when disciples followed Jesus on, on the path of this astonishing generosity, the world was forever changed. And church, that still happens today. 
when we're willing to walk this road of generosity with Jesus. But the truth of the matter is, and, and, and this is true for me as well, sometimes we struggle to be generous, don't we? We struggle with it. Or maybe it's more that, that, that we're good at being generous in some areas, but struggle in others. For instance, maybe for you, you might excel in the grace of giving, like the Macedonian churches did. Maybe giving financially, you excel in this. But maybe you're not so generous with your forgiveness toward people who have hurt you. Maybe you're, you're generous at giving money, but maybe you're stingy with your forgiveness. You see, there, there's more to being generous than, than giving of our money. Yes, of course, we're, we're called to be generous with our money. Of course we are. We're called to be generous with the poor, with those who, who don't have as much as us. We're called to be generous to the local church and, and to other kingdom-minded uh, organizations. But, but what about being generous with our forgiveness? Or being generous with our hospitality? By embracing outsiders and foreigners and loving our enemies. I mean, that's the kind of hospitality that Jesus shows us and calls us to. And we can be, we can be generous with our spiritual gifts and our acts of service. And we can be generous by, by serving in the church. To build people up in their faith and and to build people up and spur them on to love and good works, as the scriptures call us. And church, I want to call you to be generous in all of these things, but I want to focus particular attention on using your gifts within the church to serve. No matter what that is, whether it's serving coffee or, or, or in, a sun, in the Sunday school or fixing broken chairs, the church needs us to rise up and build one another up in faith, to build our children up in faith, to use our gifts for the glory of God, for his kingdom. But we can also use our, our, our spiritual gifts and our acts of service. We can be generous with them in places like Kelowna's Gospel Mission or the Okanagan Valley Pregnancy Care Center, two groups that we, that we partner with because we see kingdom work. We can be generous with our acts of service and the gifts God's given us. We can also be generous with our stuff. And we can be generous, mark this, we can be generous in the way that we carry our theological convictions. We can create space for people who disagree with us about God and church. We can be generous. We can be generous online. We can be generous with our comments and, and our assumptions about people when we read things online about them. You see, walking the path of generosity with Jesus, it, it takes lots of different forms. And, and even though we all struggle in some of these areas, because we all do, we need to understand that Jesus is inviting us to walk all of these paths. But he's inviting us not to do it alone. He invites us to walk the path with him. In, in Matthew 25, Jesus tells this parable. Uh, and, and the parable uh, is... is uh, Really, what the parable at the end of the day is saying is that when we walk a path of generosity, that Jesus is somehow uniquely present with us when we walk that path of generosity. He's with us. In fact, our generosity is extended to him directly. 
Maybe you know the parable. It's the parable of the sheep and the goats. But essentially, in the parable, the Son of Man, who is Jesus, and this is at the end of Matthew 25, the Son of Man, who is Jesus, he separates the faithful on his right hand from the unfaithful on his left hand at the very end of the age. They're separated. And what separates the faithful from the unfaithful, mark this, is the generosity they show toward people in need. Listen to what Jesus says to the faithful in the story. He says, this is in in verse 34. He says, Then the king will say to those on his right, the faithful, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And then the faithful reply, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? And the king answers, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And the point is that when we act with generosity toward those in need, Jesus sees those actions directed at himself. See, walking the path of generosity, it actually brings us into the very presence of Christ. Which is why, I think, that learning to practice generosity as a regular spiritual discipline, it can actually help us stay connected to Jesus in the myriad of things that that make up our daily life or our weekly life. That we can practice the spiritual discipline of generosity by, by finding a regular rhythm for giving, for giving our money away or, or serving others in the church and outside of the church and, and finding a regular rhythm for practicing forgiveness and, and maybe opening our home to people in need or in crisis. And I'm sure there's many other ways that you can dream of to walk the path regularly of generosity with Christ. And I wonder what that path looks like in your own life. And when it comes to to walking this path, I I think it's important to point out that that where our generosity comes from, like what is our our, our motivation to to give? It's an important question to ask. And I want to say that a disciple's generosity, it doesn't come out of obligation. And our generosity doesn't come out of a sense of religious duty either, that that we have to do this. Rather, our generosity flows from a personal encounter with Jesus' own generosity to us. Isn't that how it works? Listen to 2 Corinthians, the text again, verses 8 and 9. Paul says this to the church. He calls them to walk the path of generosity. He says, look, I'm not commanding you. But I I want to test the sincerity of your love by by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know it. You know it. That though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor so that 
through his poverty you might become rich. See, the generosity of the Macedonian disciples, here it, it flowed from knowing the grace, as the Apostle Paul puts it. They knew the grace. The grace of Jesus, the one that, that embraces sinners and outsiders and, and the broken, not because of their own merit, but simply because of his love. They know the grace, not in their head, but in their bones, in their being. And church, we know the grace. And it's only a personal encounter with the love of Jesus that, that can motivate a disciple to regularly walk the path of generosity. No law can call it out of you. No, no rule or ritual or obligation can call it out of you. Only an encounter with the grace of Jesus. Who, though he was rich for your sake, became poor so that you could know the riches of life with God. And maybe you've been living under kind of these feelings of religious obligation. Maybe you grew up in a, in a home and, and it was kind of a, a really strict religious environment. And you've been living under the, these feelings of religious obligation. Uh, and maybe you give to the church. Or maybe you even serve in a ministry, but you do it with these feelings of guilt that you have to, that you should. Friends, hear me. Jesus doesn't want that for your life. He doesn't. He wants you to know his endless grace and love. His endless grace and love. And when you do, give. Give out of that. Not obligation, not not religious ritual or rule. Or maybe for you, maybe, maybe you don't give on a regular, whether that's giving to the church or serving in the church or, or any of these other ways of giving. And maybe you don't, and maybe it's because you feel like it's expected of you. I mean, maybe this happens, that you feel this independent voice inside of you saying, well, you know what, if it's expected of me, I'm just not going to do it. I gotta say, this was me as a teenager. Not in the church, but in my home. <laughs> you want me to clean my room? Well, I'll show you. I'm not going to do it right now. I'll do it on my own terms. <laughs> Sorry, mom and dad. It's my confession. We, we have that voice, don't we? But when it comes to these things, look, Jesus doesn't want to weigh a person down with religious expectations. He doesn't want that. He came to deconstruct that. But he does reconstruct us. And, and he reconstructs us by inviting us to experience life. And to experience life by following him on the road of being generous with all that he's poured into our life. And maybe it's time for you to hear Jesus' invitation. And it's his invitation to take new steps on this path and to start giving your life away in new ways whether it's your money or your time or your forgiveness, no matter what it might be. Because it's like Jesus says in Matthew 10, 8, he says, freely, freely you have received. Now freely give. Generosity, it flows from the love of God that we have first received, not from guilt, not from obligation. And so church, I wonder, how can you build the spiritual discipline of generosity into your life? Some of you might not like that word discipline, but sometimes we need these structures. We, we need discipline to, uh, we need to commit ourselves to something in order to grow. What would it look like to commit yourself to being generous with your time, 
your money and your spiritual gifts and all the rest in the days ahead. It's like the Apostle Paul calls all of us disciples to, and he says, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. Church, may we excel in the grace of giving. Now, I want to shift gears slightly before I wrap up this morning. And I want to shift gears by, by trying to pull together a few threads that we've been kind of weaving over the last five weeks in this sermon series. See, we've been, we've been looking at these pathways that, that grow our life with Jesus, right? Sabbath, scripture, prayer, worship, and now uh, we've spoken about generosity. Five things. And we could also add to this list a few of the other spiritual disciplines like fasting or silence and solitude. These are, are, are ancient pathways that disciples have walked to stay connected to Jesus in the myriad of things that fill our life because our life gets filled with lots of things. And some of the ancient monks, they had this practice where they would combine all of these individual spiritual disciplines into what they would call a rule of life. Now, I don't want you to get scared away by the word rule because it, it sounds rigid, doesn't it? Uh, it sounds harsh to some people, but, but back in the day, this word rule, it had a different connotation because it comes from the Greek word that means trellis. And you gardeners, you know what a trellis is. A trellis is this support system for a plant that helps it grow toward the sun and it helps it produce good fruit. Oh, I mean, we live in the Okanagan here, right? And so we drive past the, the wineries all the time. And we see the trellis. It's that, it's that wooden and wire structure that's in the vineyards that, that the vines grow up and they grow out toward and, and so they don't get trampled on the ground and they can produce fruit. So, like a trellis, a rule of life is a structure that helps a person grow up toward Christ and out toward others. And like I began this morning talking about soccer practice and, and how structure is important if we want to grow as disciples who are truly following Jesus. That's what the rule of life does. That's what the trellis does. And so these early Christians of the past, they would build a trellis. They would develop a rule of life to follow and it would support their journey in following Jesus. And so sometimes the trellis would consist of these or not sometimes, it would consist of these different spiritual disciplines. And they'd be incorporated into a rhythm of living, whether that be on a daily basis, weekly basis, monthly, or, or yearly basis. For instance, some of, uh, of, of the uh, early Christians would build a rule of life around a few things. Uh, sometimes they would take prayer and they would set times every day to pray. <laughs> They would basically set their watch, though they didn't have a watch, <laughs> and they would pray. They would then build in structure around reading the Bible at set times throughout the week. They'd participate in a worship service, usually a number of times a week. They would take time to serve in the church and give to the poor with their generosity, usually on a weekly basis as well. And so this became their trellis. It, was, it wasn't so that they could show the world how holy they were or, or, or how spiritual they were, uh, but rather it was to help them grow to be disciples of Jesus. 
to shape them to be people who look like him in the world. And what I really like about this idea of, of a rule of life is that, that people were encouraged to put something together that, that suited them as individuals. Because a, a, a rule of life sometimes needs to be unique to our life situation. Right? The, the, the way that you engage the spiritual disciplines might look different if you're, you're a, a young adult or if you're a parent with young kids. Or if you're a senior, for that matter, because your life looks different in, in different seasons. And so people would build a, a rule of life that fit them, that suited them, that helped them follow Jesus. And so church, here's your homework. <laughs> you didn't know there was homework this morning, did you? But here it is. I want you to take 15 minutes this week. And I want you to prayerfully write out your own rule of life. To build a trellis of the things that you can practice daily, weekly, and monthly that will help you walk with Jesus. I want to give you an example. I want to give you an example of what my trellis looks like. And I do this not be like, hey, look at my trellis. Look, I'm a mess, all right? Come on, let's be honest. <laughs> I'm not a mess, but sometimes I am. My wife's in the children's ministry, so if you want to get a sense as to what kind of mess I am, you can talk to her. I need a trellis. I need structure. I need support. I'm not a very structured person, but I need it. So here's my rule of life. It's my trellis. It's what helps keep me vitally connected to God. It consists of five things. Prayer, scripture, Sabbath, worship, and generosity. You can kind of see where I got the sermon series from, right? <laughs> There are others, but these are five. And so for me, first, it's prayer. And in my trellis, I seek to pray every day. I don't pray for an hour. My trellis of prayer is actually a few moments before I get out of bed. Before I reach for my phone, before I step a foot on the floor, it's simply I, I, I wake up and I say, Jesus, thank you for this day. May I see you in it. May I honor you in it. And the prayer doesn't always follow those words. Sometimes it, it, it is a little different or uh, it's a little longer or uh, different kind of ideas come to my mind. But I just take a moment to pray, just that moment, every day. It's part of my trellis. But second, there's scripture, and I don't read scripture every day. I know there's a song that says, read your Bible and pray every day and you'll grow, grow, grow. And if you don't, you start shrinking. I haven't been shrinking. This is my confession. It's not every day, but it's three days a week that I commit to intentionally reading the Bible because it's part of my trellis. It keeps me vitally connected to Jesus. And sometimes I journal in that time, sometimes I don't, but reading the Bible is part of my trellis. Then there's Sabbath. Once a week I am committed, of course, uh, to uh, beyond the worship, but once a week I'm committed to set time aside where I'm not working, where I unplug from my work, and I get to lean into the things that I get to do, not the things I have to do. Because God gives us the gift of Sabbath. Once a week, I do that. Also, once a week, I'm, I'm committed to worship. I step into the gathered church alongside of you, and I want you to know that if I wasn't doing this job, I'd still be coming to worship. <laughs> it's part of my trellis. It helps me grow into the likeness of Christ. And then, uh, finally, uh, in my trellis is the practice of generosity. And now, of course, I'm generous at lots of times, but in my intentional generosity, once a month, 
I give financially in three different areas. I give here to our local church. I give to the work of Bible translation because I love the scriptures. They are the power to transform. They are the gospel to us. And also, we give to a few other kingdom-oriented groups. Gina, my wife, of course, she participates in this rhythm of generosity with me because, uh, well, it's her money as well. <laughs> but she also has an added rhythm of serving in our children's ministry once a month because our kids need other people to invest in them. And my own kids aren't in the ministry. <laughs> her service isn't for my own kids' benefit. It's for the benefit of the family of God. And church, I, I want to call you to this. Sometimes we, we don't serve, we, we sit. But Jesus wants us to be a family on mission together. It's my trellis. It supports my life and my walk with Jesus. I try to pray daily. I read scripture and Sabbath and worship weekly. And then, on a monthly basis, I enter intentional generosity. And like I said, I, I don't say this all uh, to, to, to make myself look good, because sometimes I don't live up to my own trellis. <laughs> but it is the structure that I need to help me grow into Christ and out towards others. Because otherwise, I'm kind of just walking in circles with cones on my ears. <laughs> I wonder what yours looks like. Let's pray. Jesus, we know that your word is life. And so, Jesus, I pray that wherever you have spoken this morning, whether it be through your, your written word, your living word, or through the preached word, Lord Jesus, I pray that your words would bring life to the people of God. You have loved us with an extravagant love. Help us to be generous. Help us to be people who, who become more like you because the point is not the spiritual disciplines. The point is that as we learn to walk with you, we become like you and we get to join your mission in the world. So Lord Jesus, do what only you can do. Make us the church in every sense of the word, we pray. Amen.